the famous sugar cookie incident happened in February of 1995. Don't know about the infamous sugar cookie incident? Well, it happened at all, as all good sermon illustrations happen. This boy was talking to the most beautiful woman on the planet, and he doesn't remember how the topic of sugar cookies came up, but he said, I hate sugar cookies. Not batting an eye, the most beautiful woman on the planet responded, what kind of cookies do you like? I think it was peanut butter cookies that I said. It might have been chocolate chip. We were talking about it, and we don't really remember. But a couple of days later, on the first Valentine's Day we celebrated together, I received a basket of not sugar cookies, but of peanut butter cookies. About six weeks later, that girl was wearing a ring on her finger. Now, I didn't know the word at the time, but the most beautiful woman still in the world understood how to read my love language. Without trying to, I communicated a timely piece of information that she acted on, and because she was experiencing temporary insanity (laughs) dating me, she responded correctly. When we love someone, we want to love them as they want to be loved. Amen? We want to speak their love language. So for the last 20, almost five years, Donna hasn't made sugar cookies for me. She has made them. Other people like them. I know they're strange, but whatever. She doesn't make me sugar cookies, and I don't put hot sauce on her tacos. Now, fortunately for us, the most beautiful, perfect person in the universe also gave us information about his love language. God made it clear to anyone who cares to know what it is that makes him feel loved. He made it clear to us how we are to love him. And he did so, among other places, right where we started last week. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You'll remember that our big idea last week was fear the right God and you don't ever need to fear anything else again. Today we're going to continue the passage and we're going to continue growing in our understanding of the Ten Commandments from a New Testament perspective. Tonight we're going to understand a little bit more how we go about loving God. And I'm going to take our passage tonight from Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. The Lord said, To us through Moses, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that was in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of all those who hate me. But 
showing steadfast loves to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. If you are going to love Yahweh, if you are going to love Jesus, if you are going to live a life like we talked about last week that loves and trusts or boasts in God, then we are going to have to love Him and trust Him and boast in Him and all these synonyms we talked used last week. We're going to have to do this for God alone. And we're going to have to love Him and trust Him and boast in Him above anything and everything else. Why? Well, for a number of reasons. Not least of which is God commanded us to, but also because there's, there's absolutely nothing else in the universe that's worth loving and trusting and boasting in as much as the Lord. Nothing else satisfies and, properly understood, and God wants what will give you the most lasting joy. Jesus, as you remember from last week, is interested in helping you make the eternally wisest investments possible. And having this God, if, if you will understand and you will love and you will trust this God in a God-centered way, then God will bless you. That's exactly what He promises to do all through Scripture, not least of which is Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord. And when you do, when you so arrange your heart by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you so arrange your heart that you're delighting yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of of your heart. If I may, I will change that just a little bit to fit the rest of our sermon. The big idea tonight is delight yourself in Christ, in Jesus. So, we're going to ask and answer many questions tonight. And the first one is I want to know what is the most important word on how to love, trust, and or boast in and or worship the Lord. And it's right here, the second commandment. And there are two things that are included in this commandment. The first is we must worship God as He tells us to. We need to worship Him in His love language. In other words, we must worship the right God right. We must not ever, ever think of making God sugar cookies, any kind of crustaceans, or making anything with mayonnaise. It just doesn't make sense. Why would you offend God like that? I heard a few groans. That's all right. We must worship God as he tells us to. And then secondly, we must not make any representation of God. Because when we do, we are limiting God and we are corrupting ourselves. Now allow me to clarify Making an image of God does two things, both of which harms us. The first is, it limits God. So if, like Aaron, when Moses was up on Mount Horeb actually getting the Ten Commandments, we make bull images and pretend they come out of the fire. You remember that story, I trust. Well, when we make these bull images, we display God's power, but we limit His intelligence. 
Well, what if we make an image of an eagle and we, we call it God our eagle? Well, we'll display His magnificence, but we will limit His right hereness. That is absolutely essential to our experience of God in this life. And making an image of God teaches our hearts a lie. It teaches our hearts a lie because it makes us believe we can control God. Hear me on this. This is going to take some unpacking. You and I and every other mother's child on earth is fond of believing that we can strike a manly relationship with God. I'll scratch God's back if He'll scratch mine. If I do some things and I don't do other things, then God will owe me and I'll get what I want. My beloved, these statements are the essence of idolatry, not Christianity. Now to understand this, we need to ask another question. Why are people interested in, why are they tempted to worship idols? Now, okay, let's start with ancient times. Part of the lure of idolatry is that the idol worshiper didn't need to worry about any standard of of morality because the idol worshiper believed that the idol only witnessed what was done right in front of it, right in its presence. So, you can live like Satan as long as you come in and you go to the temple and you do the right things often enough. You're good. Hey, If I can have this little idol to worship, I say a few words, or I kiss it once in a while, then whatever part of my back needs to be scratched, well, ah, I'm good with that. Baal, Molech, they scratch my back. And, you know, the other part of it is, is it's kind of nice if you do that, because if you do, if things don't work out, well, it's not my fault. It's the idol's fault. The idol didn't come through on what it promised. And you know what? If that's not enough, the other great benefit of idolatry is it's pluralistic. You don't diss my God, I won't diss your God. Give me a better description of our culture today. My friends, we have not left idolatry. Our culture has not grown beyond and we've somehow become mature as a society. So then that begs the question, okay, what does this look like in 21st century Santa Maria? You know, I've never seen anybody bow down to an idol. I have seen some things that were pretty sketchy in Haiti. But I've never seen someone bow down to a wooden or a metal or a stone image. But I have seen idolatry. In fact, I've participated in it myself. Let me ask you some questions. When you have something that takes your affection away from God, as opposed to deepening your affections for God, you might have an idol. This could be some entertainment that you cling to, and and you're so interested in this entertainment that you don't have time to read God's Word or fellowship with His people or pray. If you have something that you'd really rather God not see, God, you know, just just pay attention over there for a few minutes, God. 
you don't want him you don't want him to be a part of while you're doing it then you probably have an idol this could be some relationship that you know you should change or leave but you really don't want to if you have something that you rely on as we elaborated on before about for your provision your protection or your purpose if you're relying on something to save you other than God then you have an idol in other words, if you are looking for something that only God can provide, in our culture right now, this is very often politics. Neither Trump nor Clinton is your savior. Neither Warren nor the Tea Party can give you what you can only find in Jesus. Is there a website you cannot avoid for a day? Is there a relationship you cannot be happy without? Is there a circumstances, circumstance that you don't have, and because you don't have this circumstance, you doubt God's goodness? If any of those are true, we have an idol. Or four. Or five. So I have a question. How then, if this is true, how does worshiping Jesus answer the allure of idolatry, both ancient and modern? Listen, Jesus is the only one who can provide for you. He is the only one who can ultimately protect you. And he is the only one who can give you a purpose that is greater than anything under the sun. But don't take my word for it. Allow me to let Jesus speak for himself. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, I'm kind of enjoying preaching this Ten Commandments because as I'm going through, I'm finding Jesus' words on each of these commandments. And it's so exciting. You, you all ought to be excited too. This is Jesus' word on the Second Commandment. This is it. He's talking to your idols. You've got some TV show you love. You've got to watch this TV show. Well, that's a yoke. And it prevents you from doing other things. Now, by the way, that's a very minor yoke. But it's one that enslaves many people in our culture. We even call our TV shows American Idol. Every word in these two verses is a dagger aimed at the heart of idolatry. Which brings us right back to our big idea. Delight yourself in Jesus. God, Yahweh, also aimed His promises at the heart of idolatry of our toys and our food and our politics when He said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Oh my goodness, my brothers and sisters, Go home and meditate on this verse. You don't have any money? It's no problem. Come, 
Buy and eat that which satisfies. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me! Yahweh says, listen diligently to me. That means meditate on this passage tonight. It means roll it over in your mind and think about how He is speaking to you right here. And eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to Me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant My steadfast and sure love for David. That is a promise for you. That you can turn and throw your idols behind your back and you can find what you really need. You don't need idols. You need Jesus. So delight yourself in Jesus. Go back to our passage. We'll ask our next question. How was worshiping Yahweh different from idol worship back in the day? Now, on the surface, I will grant you, there were several similarities between worshiping Yahweh and the idols of the day. There was a temple and a tabernacle. You needed to offer specific sacrifices and perform specific actions. Yahweh demanded exclusive worship. He did not welcome other gods. And Yahweh claims to be Lord of all. He claims that His blessings and cursings are comprehensive. He doesn't limit Himself to be a sky God or a land God or a sea God or a fish God or a bread God or whatever else you might find. But here's the difference. Actually, let me say it this way. Here's the difference. Here, His Word, most surprisingly, No other God had come close. Yahweh gave us His Word. He communicates with us. He gives us His covenants. And He makes us His people in His Word. There is nothing, not even today, there is nothing like the Bible in terms of relationship and promise. And that's why here at Grace we make no apology for being a Word-centered people because God makes no apology for being a Word-centered God. You have an idol over here and you come and the priest tells you to do a couple of things. You got it. Okay, good. You walk away. But the Lord tells you, eat My Word. Feast on My Word. Live by My Word. Allow me to put it simply. If you today in 21st century Santa Maria want to avoid breaking the second commandment, go to the Bible. Delight yourself in Jesus. Go to the Bible and learn there directly from Him. Get to know God better. And when you do, you will therefore love Him more than the idols you love right now. You will trust Him more than the idols you trust right now. And let me tell you something else. Every single one of us Every single one of us has a next step that we need to take with Jesus. And how are we going to take that next step with Jesus? The only way we're going to be able to do it is by going and meeting with Him in His Word. Get to know God and the deceiving heart in your chest will not cling to broken cisterns that hold no water any longer.
Now, there is an objection to this, what I'm teaching now. And that is that Christians are idolaters with regards to the cross and the Bible. And the answer to that is, yeah, we are sometimes. When Christians worship the cross or other images or the Bible, then yes, we become idolaters. When we look to these things as our help as opposed to the God that they represent, then yes, we become idolaters. But the answer ought to be no. The cross is the symbol of our faith, as is the fish or the dove or others. The cross symbolizes the work of Christ and reminds us of what God has done, which is why we don't keep Jesus on our crosses. Likewise, holding up the Bible as the means by which we know God is not idolatry because we do not worship the Bible. Instead, we use it as God intends for us to use it, and that is as a means for knowing Him better and therefore loving Him and trusting Him more and therefore loving and trusting our idols less. So, how do we 21st century Santa Marian Christians, how do we disobey the second commandment? Well, I'm glad you asked. We disobey the second commandment when we make images that represent God. Oh, piece of cake, no problem. Won't do it. Good. I've got the second one locked down. Anybody feel that way? Don't, because you're wrong. Obviously, don't make images of God because this commandment expressly forbids it and don't worship anything representing him worship the lord instead but here's where it gets tricky here's where we have to pay attention why because motives matter i cannot say to you whether your velvet picture of jesus hanging in your front room is an idol any more than you can say to me that one of my ten nativities that's around my house at about this time of year is also an idol anybody know what i'm talking about i love nativities i do okay but i also know in my heart, because I have asked myself this question before, I know in my heart that these nativities are a reminder that Jesus put flesh on. I don't worship at my nativity. Instead, I turn to it as a reminder. Praise Jesus. Jesus came with flesh on. And maybe your velvet Jesus does the same for you. Praise Jesus. I'm not going to judge you about that. Because motives matter, and I can't read your heart. And when I begin to allow myself to think of my nativity as something more than that, when I begin to start thinking of my nativity as something that, that represents God in my living room, now I'm in trouble. So allow me to ask the same question slightly differently. Not how do we disobey the second commandment, but what is forbidden here? Is it carved images? Is it art in general? Now many in the church have struggled over the wording of this commandment. They have believed, many have believed, that making images of any kind is forbidden. But I think that the point... And the point in the NIV, in our hymnal, I noticed, and in several other translations, I think 
evangelicals agree that what is forbidden is the bowing down and worshiping of images. How many of us have pictures of our kids hanging on our wall? Right? That's not idolatry. Could be, I suppose. But the majority report of the church has largely fallen on the side that what is forbidden here is worshiping, not what we would call art. And art itself has been deemed by most of the church as inoffensive to this commandment. Though, having said that, there are a large number of minorities who have. And if you find yourself in there, Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not from faith is sin. So burn your idols. But if that's not you, and you probably know it's not me because I've taught many times that part of the image of God in us, part of what makes us like God is that we are creative and art is wonderful and painting and sculpting and plays and books and shows and games. These are wonderful demonstrations of how God makes himself known in us and through us and for us. So let me clarify. You and I disobey the second commandment when we use anything to stand in place of God or we begin to value a thing, a circumstance, or a relationship as our God. When you look to something or idea as your connection to God, then you disobey the second commandment. Now I'm looking at you all here and What are some examples? It might be your Sunday school attendance. It might be your correct theology. It might be your nativity scene. And this, of course, brings us to our next question. What does God mean when he says that he is jealous? And, of course, there is a distinction. There's a distinction between being jealous of something and jealous of for something if you're jealous of something or someone then what is happening is you're coveting whatever it is that they have that you don't you want it they got it and you think this isn't fair god you're not coming through on your deal to me by giving me this thing or relationship or circumstance You're saying to Jesus, Jesus, you're not enough. I need something else to make me whole. I need something to provide my protection, my provision, or my purpose. And clearly, God is never jealous of us. Because He has given us everything that we have. However, God is jealous for us. Again, this is a tricky road. We need to to walk this road carefully. God wants for us the best. What is the best? Himself. God wants for us Himself. Why does God demand our exclusive praise as we noted last week? Because He knows that we need to praise Him exclusively. Because God knows that we will not enjoy Him or ultimately enjoy anything else if we do not enjoy Him supremely. As usual, John Piper puts it better. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Therefore, Delight yourself 
in Jesus. Delight yourself in Jesus. And this brings us to perhaps the most difficult question in the whole passage. What does it mean that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation? Now I gotta say, we in our culture today hate this. I mean, we hate it even more than we hate the command against idolatry. No thank you, I want to cling to my politics. No thank you, I want to cling to fill in the blank. First, let's clarify what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that God punishes the son for his father's sin. Now, this is absolutely clear in Ezekiel 18.20 and at least two other places. But God says through Ezekiel, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Okay, so it doesn't mean that dad sins and kid gets punished. That's not what's going on here. Instead, Alistair Begg puts it this way. He says, The threatening words in Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, concerning the punishment of the children for the sins of the father, are a reminder. They are a reminder to us that when we disobey the commands of God, we do not do so in isolation. The consequences may run for generations. There is no sin that happens in isolation. Every sin has effects on more than just yourself. Because when you cling to an idol, whatever idol that is, it changes you and makes you more like that idol. Go to a cow farm and grab a whole bunch of cow dookie and bring it to your chest and then ask your wife if she wants a hug. That's what I thought. Ain't going to happen. Another way of saying this is what Kevin DeYoung said. He said, the children share in their father's punishment because they share in their father's sins. You are going to hug your children and they are going to get the cow dookie on them and they're going to wear it just like you did and they're going to pass it on to their kids and they're going to pass it on to their kids. Now, God is superlatively gracious. And he has told us, come reason with me. And though your sins may be as cow dookie, they shall be as white as snow. God can wash that off. And that is exactly what he is communicating in the very next verses. He says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep his my commandments. Now you're not going to hear me say this very often, but I think that the nearly inspired version got the translation better than the ESV in this case, because I think the implication is generations. God is saying 
thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what is he trying to communicate? Note, first of all, the difference between three and four generations of punishment and then thousands. Thousands. I mean, we're talking three orders of magnitude here if you're a science geek like both of my boys are. God wants to emphasize that his blessing is an automatic response to human beings. God wants to emphasize here that he hates punishing and he loves blessings. So delight yourself in Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Pastor Benji reminded us this morning, start with the plenty of God. Why? Because that's where God starts. He starts with plenty. He starts with grace. He starts with blessing. He starts with giving. Praise Jesus. God loves to bless, so delight yourself in Him, and He will give you those blessings that you desire in your heart. And He has everything that's worth desiring. Now I have to pause for a second. Because I don't want this sermon to sound like a prosperity gospel teaching. It isn't. Are you going to get all your desires? No. Are you going to have relationships that are just messed up for one reason or another? Oh yeah. Are you going to keep going to that cow dookie and getting it on your clothes again and again and again? This, my friends, is where delight yourself in Jesus truly comes in. It's not that you won't wrap your arms around that again. It's that Jesus will wrap His arms around you again. In Christ, you are safe and you are loved. So delight yourself in Jesus. Now it's true. We need to remind ourselves. We need the warning about God's jealousy. We need the reminder that for those who will not submit, those who will not delight themselves in Jesus, those who will not trust God's promises for you in Christ, there is no promised blessing for those. It's not there. Warning. Big warning of major problems ahead. But then we need to ask ourselves, okay, Lord, I want this blessing. I want to open my arms for you. What does it mean to love God and keep His commandments? I'm going to keep this real simple. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, where do we learn from Jesus? From His Word. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Delight yourself in Jesus. 
Christ fulfilled the law. There is no more law to fulfill. He's, that's all there is. So what do we do? We turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look in His Word, in the Bible, full in His wonderful face. And as we do that, as we go to His Word, as we look to Him, we will see that the things of the earth grow strangely dim. They're just not as important anymore. Why? Because in His face, in His Word, we will see the light of His glory and His grace. God's power to accomplish His purposes of abolishing idols in your heart. Delight yourself in Jesus. Come to the wood to be saved. Come to the stone to be taught. Here, in the second commandment, you are taught that Jesus is the object of your affections. Learn that anything and everything else is to be second to God. And when you do this, your heart will rejoice because it will have found the only thing worth finding. You will find that when you and I worship God in God's love language, when we never give Him mayonnaise under any circumstances whatsoever, God already speaks your love language. So delight yourself in Jesus. Lord, once again, we need Your Spirit to move in us and through us and for us. Bless us so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.